We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello. And welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Ed. Hello. Would you like to state principle number two from your checklist of necessary conditions to see us into a flourishing future past the climate emergency? So, number two, people and constitutional sovereignty, all political power resides in the people who delegate a defined measure of that power to a government and other institutions. Right. Before we get into the context, should we just spell out what we mean by, firstly, constitutional sovereignty, and secondly, what it means for the people to have this power? Yeah. So, sovereignty in the sense is, if you like, who's in charge at the end of the day? Who is the sovereign? And currently in the UK, we have this, well, notionally anyway, we have this thing called parliamentary sovereignty. So we put the power after we've elected our representatives into parliament, and that's sovereign. So we'll come back to that. What this says is that as in other countries and constitutions. No, no, no. Uh, The sovereign is the people. They have the power. We have the power. And, And this principle is actually very much about taking back power and control. And that in order for that power to be exercised, we have to put it into a rule book, a rule book that establishes institutions And that rule book is called a constitution. So hence, you get people and constitutional sovereignty. You could argue in relation to our first principle, the biosphere uh, at the centre of the governance model, that actually it's the planet that is sovereign. And and of course, in many respects, it is, because Mm. without the planet and without the biosphere, without our life support system, we don't exist. But in terms of our functioning and our enacting democracy and government, then, if you like, the people are talking and acting on behalf of the planet. Hmm. So, So that's the way that connects. So in a sense, this reflects the reality that it is the people who are doing the doing and also that those people are the beneficiaries of of their sovereignty, of governance as such. There's an element there of 
the doing that in the sense that, you know, if you go back to Athenian democracy, then they all got together and they voted on everything uh, Mm. at an assembly. Now, the problem is with our size of country and most sizes of country, we can't all take every decision. We can't all be party to every decision. And therefore, we have to pass some of that power uh, strictly controlled ways through to, well, governments and Mm. other institutions and second chambers and the judiciary. So, well, let's get on to the context at the moment. So is to what extent is this principle already reflected in law at the moment? And to what extent is it not reflected? Is, do we have a problem as such? Well, in the UK, if you think about it, where, where is the power? Notionally, it's in Parliament. But what then happens because of the two-party system, then within Parliament, one party most of the time, has the majority. That party then uh, establishes, well, it elects a leader and establishes a government. With all of the the whipping, as it's called, in other words, the party discipline that says, well, basically, you always have to vote for whatever the government decides, otherwise we're going to chuck you out. Then, in effect, what we have is executive sovereignty, if you like, or government sovereignty. And, of course, that can produce absolute monarchs. So so we've Mm. got one at present. We had one with Tony Blair. We had one with Margaret Thatcher, where the system was such that the concentration of power was such that we were getting into a situation where we had a sovereign a sovereign mm. in terms of an individual person, you know, not a king or queen, but a politician. Let's just rewind on sovereignty for a second, because I, I have this quote came to mind from a, an old Chinese text that words words have an ancestor and affairs have a sovereign. And it sort of reminded me that sovereignty is something that's quite uh, mercurial, that there are people who have nominal power, yeah, you know, according to the law, yeah, and then there are the people who actually have the power and are pulling strings to some yes. extent. Yes, in this sort of first past the post system, it seems to me that there's very little break on the power of the people who get past that post. Let's just stand back. You know, who actually exercises power in the UK? Well, certainly there are some significant media barons, Murdoch, Rothermere, and and the others. There's then the whole influence of preferential lobbying, which we'll come on to in much more detail in another episode, but whereby the lobbyists, I mean, particularly for big business, big industry, get decisions through. So they have a lot of power. You then find the wealthy are exercising power, people in the city and traders are exercising power. So although notionally we have this term of parliamentary sovereignty, actually in terms of how the power is really exercised, I mean, I guess you could call it elite sovereignty. Mm. So in a sense, this effort of, of placing nominal sovereignty to individuals is a way of 
putting a break, giving people the best potential that they have to put a break on the sort of tacit sovereignty of media barons and political lobbyists. And so know, this principle is an absolute power grab. And it's we the people saying, no, 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 the way it's set up at present, A, doesn't work. B, we typically are powerless and very occasionally exercise a sort of very limited amount of power at an election. There are so many things wrong with the way it works. This is a reset and this says, no, we want democracy. Democracy demonstrably is a far better system to work under. There are 50 shades of democracy. That's Mm. something else we can come on to. The starting point has to be that power resides with the people. And all of these various forces and individuals and companies and the rest of it that have, in effect, grabbed power from us and Mm. no... Uh, mistake about that, that they have successively uh, taken power from the people. We're saying, no, 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 uh, this is a reset. Power starts with the people. And now we can go from there to design a system of governing, uh, which, first of all, works. Um, Secondly, it works for us and in our Mm. interests. And thirdly, I guess we would want that system to work fairly and justly. Yeah, we were talking about this habitual power and the learned helplessness that we see in the form of political apathy. Yeah. And we traced it back to the fact that all the power is in Parliament. And firstly, there's this sort of gravitational pull, which almost seems like the falling of dust. It's just this inevitability that power will accrue at the centre for various reasons, like, for example, lobbying interests, wanting to to get agendas promoted and so on. But then it seemed to have a continued effect where it becomes a sort of habit where there's just this sort of systematic, rather thoughtless exercise of power. You can see the UK is amongst the most centralised countries in the world. And you can see the way that that has stemmed from first, you know, parliamentary sovereignty going into, in effect, executive or elite sovereignty, that then calling all of the shots. To some extent, we have been party to that because Mm. we as individuals increasingly expect government to solve every problem. Um, and so, you know, government, why haven't you done this? Government, why? I heard a case this morning where a, a kid had um, got injured in a play park and uh, mm. well, the, the parents were complaining that, you know, the local government in this case hadn't done its proper job of making the play park entirely safe. Well, you're never going to make play parks entirely safe. That's the point. Mm. The whole point. But this pushing onto institutions. Is that a, an effect of consumerism, do you think? Is that a sort of cultural? I I think that there's that there as well, absolutely. Mm. You know, if I want something and I can pay for it, then yes, off we go. And the the entitlement, the rights and all of that stuff. But it's meant that we've got into this norm that we feel powerless. Mm. And it's like, oh, here comes along jolly old Philip and Ed saying, well, actually, we need to bring the power back to the people. And people going gosh, I didn't even know you could do that. Well, you can, and many other countries and jurisdictions do. 
it's then a change in mindset and it's an onus on us as individuals to say, I do want to get involved. I don't simply want to sit here and on the one hand be served, but on the other hand be controlled. And of course, on the other hand, be unserved. And in a sense, uncontrolled insofar as a lot of this exercise of of power is really, as we've been saying, systematic and therefore not really thought out. There's this institutional sclerosis that is just this sort of logjam of decision making that, I mean, from what you say, I kind of find myself seeing sort of the, the ultimate kind of terrible bureaucracy where nobody really knows what they're doing. Everybody's a job's worth and nothing effective is happening for anybody. I think that we traced that as being the, sort of the outcome of this gradual drift of power towards the centre. If you get a stuck, a fixed system of governing, which between elections, there's politics with a small p and people jumping up and down and media campaigns and all the rest of it, but, but by and large is very static. And so any organisation without good accountabilities and and without pressures on it to improve and perform will become sclerotic, as the word is there. And if you have a system of governing where the, the power resides fundamentally with the people and therefore you have mechanisms of accountability and mechanisms of pressure so that if things aren't working, then they're changed and those institutions are revived. It sounds to me like this is, we're talking about a culture of thinking systemically rather than merely getting elements of of institutional logic in place. We'll take the welfare system, for example. Mm. It's incredibly complex. And over the years, if it's the Conservatives, then they're tougher on welfare And on the other hand, if it's labour, then they're softer on welfare. No one stands back and says, well, what is it we're trying to do with this welfare system? And anyway, there isn't one thing that we're trying to do. You know, on the one extreme, you've got people who are never going to be able to, for physical or mental reasons, never going to be able to look after themselves. Well, That's one category. There's another category of people who are recently out of work and how are we going to support them? There's another category of people sort of long-term unemployed who need all sorts of different measures to enable them to become active and tax-positive members of society. Well, you know, something of that complexity, you have to look at systemically. Well, if you just have a whole series of fixed institutions that are busy doling out benefits in a better or or worse way that don't have the eye on the ball, if you like, that don't have the eye on why are we doing this? Um, What's the purpose? How are we doing it? And of course, particularly, is it working? Then you get, you know, what what have we done with welfare for the last 30, 40 years? It's always been a problem. We've never been able to settle it. Has any systems thinking been done on the benefit system? Well, it's very interesting you say that because we've got an idea to set up what might be called a systems thinking tank. 
So mm. it would be a thinking tank, not a think tank. So a think tank basically takes a problem away, thinks about it, analyzes it, and comes up with an answer. And that almost inevitably will be a systematic cause and effect, mm. linear answer driven from the center. Well, you'd know about that from your time at Demos. Yeah, very much so. Whereas a thinking tank says, yeah, here's a problem. Now we're going to have to go on thinking about it. And we're going to have to continue to think about it as we try different means to improve the situation of concern. These will all be experiments. Some of those experiments will work. Some of those experiments won't work. But experimentation is absolutely core to systems thinking. And I should say there has been some attempts in the past, um, not to decry everything, that would be unfair, but there have been attempts in the past to look at uh, welfare um, in in the round, and I suppose more systemically. That's where universal credit came from. And of course, it ended up as a solution from the centre. It ended up being rolled out, as they say, what a dreadful phrase. Mm. And it ended up being yet another mishmash perhaps benefited some and certainly didn't benefit a lot. The intention is to try and take some of these really difficult and complicated issues and apply systems thinking to them and, and try and shift the thinking. You're reminding me of the um, somewhat, I don't know what the word is, the psychoanalytic element of systems thinking, which is you know about personal change and transformation and so on, uh, which I think uh, Julian was talking about in the last series, Julian Corner. Um, and indeed, I suppose everybody was in their way, but Perrette was talking about it at the governmental le- level as well. But going back to our, our principle, you know, that um, all political power resides in the people, there is this element of that which requires the people to be capable of exercising that power. And if we're talking about people that are disadvantaged, severely disadvantaged, and perhaps, you know, have a kind of added learned helplessness from being attached to a welfare system, then that becomes quite a challenge, doesn't it? Every time that you get some form of participative direct democracy, where here's a particular issue, let's get a group of people together to think about it. Indeed, let's get an entirely representative group of people selected properly at random together in a citizens' assembly or a citizen convention. Every time you get one of those together, actually you find the capacity of people, all people, when informed, educated, when there's deliberation, when there's talking, Every time they're quite capable of coming Mm. to a good decision. It's very much based on the jury system. And people look at the jury system in courts time and time again. And it is quite extraordinary how often, yeah, there are some mistakes, absolutely. But how often that jury system made up of 12 randomly selected people from the most apparently uneducated, menial Mm. occupations in the land through to the highest. Everyone is perfectly capable of engaging in that jury system and of getting to a good decision. 
So I'm very much not one of those people who says, well, there are too many stupid people in the country. We can't. And, it, and of course, it, it plays to the elites. You end mm. up in situations where, oh, well, the grown-ups, as it were, you know, us, us with wealth and power and education who've been to Eton and Oxford University, you know, you must leave all these terribly difficult things to us. But <laughs> we have done. <laughs> I think we can conclusively mm. say, no, it doesn't work. Uh, we can conclusively look elsewhere and go, yes, that does work. And now it's time for us to use that phrase, take back control. Well, this is an interesting question. So where else does it work? I mean, what what are the gleaming examples that spring to mind to you of constitutional sovereignty residing in the people as a written rule in their constitutions? I mean, classically, Switzerland, and that translates into what's called consensual democracy rather than majoritarian democracy Mm -hmm. so the government is always a coalition huge amounts of decentralization subsidiarity Mm. uh, into their constitution which means that decisions are taken at regional and local levels direct and participative democracy so you can get up a petition to have a particular deliberation and referendum on a particular issue of small or large magnitude, but people have the right to do that. Has that always been the case in Switzerland? Or was that triggered by something? Or it, it was oh well what it was triggered by was the formation of Switzerland. In the nineteenth century. Yeah. And there were cantons, twenty six cantons that which which are like well, anything from Geneva, which is now a city of half a million through to the smallest canton, a a local government, as it were, of 26,000. These cantons were all individual um, and separate states, in effect. And it was like, well, how are we going to bring these together so that we've got a country? Because actually it would make sense economically and politically to have us together. The deal was written that there would be this very high level of decentralization of power embedded at many other levels beside the federal level. And that was the trigger there. Hmm. That's interesting. So I wonder what trigger, you know, I, I suppose if we look at the UK, for example, since that's where we, we both are at the moment, I think there's never been such a risk of dissolution. There's discontent in Scotland, Northern Ireland, and possibly Wales as well. And you look at that and you say, well, it's precisely because of the ineptitude of the Westminster Whitehall system of governing, gradually people have got more and more discontented with it. And indeed, the powerlessness that people have felt, I mean, particularly in Scotland during Mm. the time of Margaret Thatcher, when Scotland was really treated like an occupied country, and people getting more and more hacked off with their lot and looking to a solution. What can we do? Well, if you're Scotland, you can be independent. Ditto Northern Ireland, ditto Wales. And you find that independence movement going on around the world 
are a symptom of the collapse of complex societies, the, the Joseph Tainter book, um, which looks historically at the way civilizations have come to an end. And I find it ridiculous at present when it seems almost the only response to independence cries is to oppose it. When actually it's like, well, could we now have a discussion amongst grown-ups as to what would be the best way of organising our countries? Could we have a discussion going beyond simple devolution, the, the place of local government, the place of cities? There was considerable regret in the Johnson government, I think, last year when there was that confrontation with Andy Burnham over the lockdowns that, you know, Burnham's power rested on the fact that Manchester was or is quite a devolved administration. You can see the colonial attitude, the overhang from the empire. Mm. We just sort of went off and colonised or brought into the sort of imperial family, various mm. countries and, and peoples from around the world and, and treated them in this very dismissive, um, superior a controlling way and and you can see that absolutely in in the, the reaction of many of those in power now to the entirely legitimate claims of people to want some power could we have some mm. power people and worth emphasizing there is a northern england independence party as well and indeed a yorkshire uh, party. Oh, I didn't know that. It's, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's understandable that they would want to. I try to get across to friends in Wales here that this desire for independence, it's not about anti-England or anti-Britain. It's about We'd like some power, please. Mm. We have some power. Meaning that they want to, that people, quite reasonably, and including myself, want to have a say in their destiny. Some agency. Exactly. And, you know, on, on the whole issues of devolution, it's time for a grown up conversation on that rather than Johnson sort of goes up to Scotland to, you know, reassure mm. the Scots. Well, I would have thought um, it'd have quite the opposite effect. I suppose we always try and finish with both a model and, and maybe an action. And I was thinking, you know, what, what are the things that stop me or possibly stop people from engaging politically? And I suppose one element is confidence that you just don't, you know, you're not sure that you know what to say or what you're talking about. And then there's things like confusion because the, the systems are so Byzantine. Uh, you might meet with prejudice or you might be prejudiced yourself or cynical or you just may, may be weakened by virtue of the fact that, you know, you need to work so hard. I mean, this is the classic Marxist thing that people need to, to work so hard that they can't, they haven't physically got the time to engage with politics. Yeah. Which of those would be most salient to you? We've sort of got this learnt powerlessness. Everything has got sucked up and now, well, that's the way it is. Confidence, I think, comes also from education. In many countries, there's civics. We used to have civics education, learning about different political systems. We need education. Confusion, absolutely. You know, how the hell does this thing work? Well, <laughs> that's the question on everyone's lips everywhere mm. um, because it's almost certainly the case, and it was certainly the case with Tony Blair, that it's like, well, where is the power? You know, mm. my prime minister but I don't seem to be able to exercise it. Economic limitations, clearly, if you're overworked, underpaid, 
But the other economic limitation is is actually wealth that a lot of people are well off and actually quite content with shopping and consumerism. And, you know, that all keeps us quiet. And so long as we can buy things, then we're all right. And it's getting beyond those immediate gratifications, I suppose, Mm. and immediate uh, limitations and starting to think about, well, hang on, you know, this, what we've got really doesn't work. Mm. We do need to think about something different. And the place that that starts is talking to our friends and our neighbours and, I don't know, well, listening to podcasts like this and getting tooled up in what sovereignty means and what it would mean to cascade that down through a, a new system of governing. I actually heard quite a good perspective on this in a podcast, I think it was about leadership in Amazon. You know, it's been this extraordinarily successful company. Whatever you think about its sure. effect on, on our society and, and everything else. They had worked out these rules for leadership, which I thought was quite a good, you know, something I, I felt that I was taking away with me. Yeah. And one of the things about uh, effective leaders is that they're mostly right. And the way they are mostly right, and this is the interesting bit, is mm. they, I think the wording was something like they seek to disconfirm their assumptions by eliciting a diversity of perspectives. So they're constantly looking to check that they, they have the right view on things, or they're constantly nervous that what they think they know is wrong. Uh, and then they're engaging with as many different perspectives in order to check that they're right. And I thought, gosh, that's a great perspective in itself on the whole diversity conversation. Yeah, no, that's absolutely brilliant, Philip. And of course, that's the scientific method. You test something and you work it out and you come to a conclusion. The scientific method then is all about continuing to try and disprove what you Yes, falsification. I think it's Karl Popper is the man, isn't he? It's, yeah. uh, the, the, uh, true scientists basically have theories or hypotheses that have not yet been disproved. So that it's, it's good enough for now, but they're always expecting that somehow it, it may be disproved. Exactly. And, and then, of course, politics is actually right at the other end of that, where, well, there's personal politics, which is about manoeuvring and talking to the right people and saying the right thing at the right time and exerting power at a personal level. And then party politics, which when it gets into government, is then about weighing up those areas which you simply cannot prove or demonstrate or there's insufficient Mm. evidence to take you down one particular path. Well, that that brings us full circle because that brings us back to this uh, experimental nature of of politics. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is a good place to close. Uh, Do you want to, I really enjoyed that, by the way, but do do you want to state principle number three on the rule of law uh, for next week, which is what we're going to be talking about? Uh, So number three, rule of law. All members of the society, including those in government, are equally subject to publicly disclosed legal codes and processes. I think, yeah, that's, that seems to be huge at the moment, doesn't it? So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. As always, thanks, Ed. I well, think that was a great yeah. session. Great. Right. Uh, see you next week. Great. Right.